Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. You'll find 115 of these awesome interviews in my podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my catalog of past episodes to listen to them all. Today's show is an encore episode of my interview with Sally G. from two years ago. I believe you'll enjoy listening to it again, or for the first time, if you missed its original release in early 2021. My name's Sally, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Sally. So glad you could be here today. So you're, you're in uh, North Carolina, and you and I knew each other, or know each other, for a long time, going to the same meetings together in Houston. Yes. How many years do you think that's been? At least... 12, 10 or 12? At least. Yeah, I'm sure. I think that's amazing that you and I have known each other that long. What is your current sobriety date? My current sobriety date is April the 4th, 1998, coming up on 23 years. Oh, that's amazing. Now, I asked the question, what's your current? Because I've heard you mention in the past that you had a period of time prior to that. So your original sobriety date was? It was February the 10th, 1989. Okay. Was that the first time you had come to AA at that point? Oh, yeah. So people get to AA for all kinds of reasons. You and I both know that the most important thing is that you got here. That's it. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God for that. So did you grow up in Houston or where did you grow up? I grew up in a town outside of Houston, Rosenberg, Texas. What was your early home life like when you were growing up and coming up there in Rosenberg? You know, there was five kids and my dad was a rice farmer and he was not home a whole lot. You know, you're either planting the rice, you're cultivating, you're gathering the rice. Mm -hmm. So he was pretty busy all year long, which left my mom to take care of us and get us to all of our, I remember we were all on the swimming team. Uh, we would get up at, you know, five thirty, six o'clock in the morning, ride our bicycles to the swim meets, the swim practice. And, you know, we were five wild kids. Hmm. And I don't think it was, you know, anything uh, out of the ordinary. Uh, my dad had made us, um, had built us up this go-kart and neighborhood kids would come and stand in line. We'd attach wagons to the back of the go-kart. And behind our house was this vacant lot that my dad owned. And we would ride around in the go-kart from sun up till sundown uh, with all the neighborhood kids. You know, we found entertainment. And it was it was really a great you know, childhood. That sounds like it. I mean, uh, what kid doesn't want to have a go-kart to ride around in all day long? Where were you uh, in, in the order of the siblings? Were you the oldest, youngest in between? In between. I had two older sisters. I have two older sisters and two younger brothers. You're smack dab in the middle, huh? In the middle. Do you remember um, in your early family life, was what was your exposure to or knowledge of drinking or alcohol? What did you perceive as a kid? You know, probably the earliest that I have of it, or my parents were members of this dance club. And, you know, they'd have people come over before the they'd all take off to go to the dances and we'd be left with a babysitter and they'd drink, you know. But I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't partake of it. it. You know, I've heard people, oh, at five o'clock, five eight years old, I was drinking margaritas or sipping from the liquor bars and this and that and the other. We didn't do that till I got into high school. Mm -hmm. It wasn't up in my face and maybe it wasn't of any interest because I didn't drink uh, in a childhood. You know, sometimes I don't know if you've ever felt this way in AA, but there are so many people who 
have that story that you were just mentioning that you didn't have where they were sneaking drinks when they were five years old and they started drinking when they were nine and that sort of thing. I didn't have that either. Not, neither of my parents drank at all. I didn't drink until, uh, geez, in, in fact, almost until I was out of high school. And But yet sitting in meetings, listening to people telling all those stories, I felt like I felt kind of left out. You know, my childhood didn't include that kind of thing. But yeah, what the heck? It, I, we got to where we got to. So so you made it through to high school without really ha- having that kind of exposure or involvement with liquor. Exactly. But, you know, uh, peop- the, the high school would get together in cars and drive out to this property down in Thompson Bottom, a pasture. Mm-hmm. Everybody round up their cars and ice chest full of beer. And mm-hmm. I don't remember whiskey at that time. When I first started drinking beer, I couldn't stand it, but everybody was drinking it. So, you know, here you go. You just drink it, too. Was that right when you got into high school or was it further along? It was probably right into into high school. So was it uh, was it mostly about the, the, the people who you were hanging with and that's what they were doing? Or was it more a situation that everybody was doing it and you just followed the lead of other folks? That, that's what everybody was doing. I mean, we'd get together and if you, you know, if you want to be cool, uh, you hopped in the cars and you went out to this pastor out in Thompson uh-huh. or you'd ride around. You'd ride around town with an ice chest in the back of your car, drink beer. Just go around and I mean, it was a party on wheels. Yeah, that's amazing. So when you were doing that, were were any people in your family involved at all? Siblings? No, it was just the, the high school group of kids that I ran around with. So we didn't really party in the same groups. OK, so you were in a different a different social group than your siblings did early on in your drinking with this group. Were there ever times where there were uh, negative consequences or things that happened that uh, got in the way of that fun-loving time? No. Well, I'll take that back. You know, the, the we didn't have mad mothers yeah. back then. And I remember being at a party. We were at this guy's house. His parents were out of town. So it was just a, a two-story house full of drinking. And uh, at the time, a lot of those kids, the, a lot of my friends smoke pot but i didn't smoke pot and i guess i got i must have i can't remember everything that i consumed that night but these two guys that were really good friends of mine Mm -hmm. they ended up driving me home and i was so drunk they just pushed me out of the car onto the front porch rang the doorbell hopped in the car and took off so here I am, barely able to stand up, and the front door opens up, and, you know, of course, my mother greets me at the front door, one of many times, and uh, I told her I'd just been drinking Dr. Pepper. <laughs> Needless to say, she was a bit infuriated by that answer. Sounds like a bad batch of Dr. Pepper, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was really bad. So I went to bed and then, you know, during the night, sometime during the night, I I uh, thought I was still out there at the mm-hmm. campground, right? And I wasn't. I was in my bed. I got in the closet and threw up. So um, that led to many nights of, you know, drink and get sick. And this is all still going on in, in high school? Yes. So what were your parents' response to this once they knew that this was going on? Grounded. Mm-hmm. Oh, Yeah. I got grounded a lot. A lot. And on Sunday mornings, I had to go to church. Hangover, no hangover, you're going to church. But that didn't that didn't stop me. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it. Uh, did, was there any physical or yelling or anything like that that went on, or was it just a simple matter of grounding you each time? Grounding. Yeah. And th- the big deal was taking the car away. When you took away the car, that was that was my freedom. Yeah, I get it. And you take away my car... You know, there it went. Yeah. And in Texas in those days, driving age was 16? 16. 16. So you're uh, you're maybe a sophomore or junior when that's going on. You know, I want to tell you, I was a freshman. Okay. Okay. So you were a freshman. So you still had 
four years of high school to be driving around and doing what it is that you wanted to do. So this was so was this kind of like standard behavior throughout high school? Yes, exactly. What I wanted to do, I was going to do it. And it didn't matter what I had to do to make that happen. And I didn't care about the about what they did or what they I mean, I cared about taking away the car, but I would find a way. Yeah. So you had plenty of workarounds whenever that happened to you, huh? Yes. Can you identify specific reasons that you might have given yourself for drinking at that time? Was it just to fit in? Was it to change the way you feel? What What were the some of the chief reasons? If, if we asked the Sally of high school age, why do you drink? What would she say? Because everybody else did. Yeah. Maybe to fit in, but but that just seemed to be what everybody did back then. Uh, that was the chief entertainment. You know, you could go to the movies and all that, but it seemed like everybody was having a really good time drinking. And you mentioned that you didn't engage in marijuana or other drugs at that point. Oh, no. No, I, I uh, it was against the law. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you were you were a law abiding citizen while you were in high school. That's good to know. Did you ever get arrested or, or in formal trouble with the law while you were in high school? Never. Most of the people, at least that I've interviewed for the uh, for the podcast, had some kind of run in with the law, some some more than others. But so you're drinking throughout high school without any super bad consequences outside of the the car getting taken away. So what happens after you get out of uh, high school? What are some of the next milestones for you? My parents wanted me to go to school. I was the third child that did not go go to college. Uh, My older two sisters went to college. One went on to be a psychologist. The other one went on to be a nurse. And and here was me. So when I jumped up and said, I'll go to Wharton County Junior College, they were thrilled to death. Now, Wharton is a whopping big 22 or 23 miles from Rosenberg, Texas. Mm -hmm. They were so excited that I was going to college. They got me an apartment in Wharton, Texas. And hence, uh, that was probably a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I enrolled in accounting courses, made terrible grades, but I drank a lot. Um, The guy that lived in the apartment next to me, uh, quite a bit older, uh, he and I would go to this place called the Wagon Wheel. And it was a bar, pool hall, and just absolutely, I'd get toast. I mean, I don't even remember Hmm. half the stuff I did when I lived in Wharton, Texas. Because every night, Mm -hmm. I drank. And I did learn uh, I was ex- where I smoked pot. So between drinking Jack Daniels and Coke and smoking marijuana, I couldn't, I wasn't, I didn't have a very good collegiate <laughs> career. <laughs> I must say, needless to say, I flunked out. I think my parents got all these pink slips. And uh, so I left Wharton County Junior College and moved back home. And started dating this guy. His parents had her. His father had a parts store in Rosenberg. And we dated for several years. And I broke up with him. And, I mean, it was like one bad Hmm. relationship after another. I mean, I wanted to have a a good, wholesome relationship with a guy. But it never happened. Was that because of the drinking and drug use? Yes. Oh, yeah. The drinking. Oh, yeah. So when you were looking for somebody whom you could date or who you would agree to date, drinking and drugs were a prerequisite for that or or just turned out that way? It it, and not the drugs, the drinking, the drinking. Uh, Okay. yeah, it turned out that way. This one guy that I was dating, it was some kind of a a scotch and water is what he drank. And he said, you know, if you look because I'd already passed out so many times with this fella, uh, and it wasn't hypoglycemia. It was pure ass drunk. He said, you know, we're going to this big party. Why don't you mm. try drinking scotch and water? You won't have a hangover, but plus it won't get you so messed mm-hmm. up. He left me with a bottle of scotch and took off. 
to go to work. And so when he comes back, I mean, I'm on the floor. I damn near drank half that bottle of scotch practicing how to drink scotch and water. So needless to say. You plunked out of that one too, huh? <laughs> I just, oh, my goodness. I'm thinking about some of these things. I just go, God, it's amazing. I'm sitting here talking to you. Um and then, you know, I ended up going to work. Oh, Lord, I had a, my sister and I, oldest one, started a detail shop in uh, 1970, mm-hmm. 1977. And after about a year, she quit because it was too cold. It was an outside, we detailed cars for the dealerships and so forth. So I got some high school kids to help me after they got out of school. But uh, the business was, uh, pretty successful, but you had to, I was kind of operating on my own accord and to be sure that all the cars and so forth got done, I had mm. to find something that was going to keep me awake day in and day out. So, you know, of course I dabbled in drugs at that time of my life, which ended up just being a bomb. I mean, I was a hot mess back then and got a little bit of reprieve uh, from my parents. You know, they said, you need to come home and settle down for a little bit, take care of some business and uh, get your head right. Cause they were concerned. And I was concerned because y- you can't function very well on hardly any sleep in a 24 hour period day. And, you know, mm-hmm. so the days were dark back then. And then I ended up getting a job working for a mortgage company, downtown Houston, hence started a little bit better path, less drinking, uh, but then, of course, once I figured out that uh, I could go to lunch and have a cocktail or two mm-hmm. and go back to work, you know, then here you go. That lunch break turns into an all day event. So I ended up quitting that job. And um, oh, we're talking late 70s now, early 80s. Yes. Yes. Early, early 80s. And then I hopped into the automotive bill industry in Rosenberg, Texas. There was a Toyota dealership there. So I thought, I'll try my hand at selling cars. So I did that. I absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. I mean, I had, uh, you know, that was uh, probably one of the best moves that I could have made. At, at that time in my life, I wasn't really concentrating drinking. You know, I had not yet cross that line i see so i worked there for a couple of years and uh then there was a dealership in houston and he wanted to interview me for their uh finance manager position in san antonio and at the time i was dating uh my husband now stan uh he mm-hmm. was the body shop manager at the toyota store so i i told him i said i uh, I took the job. So I told Stan, I said, I'm moving to San Antonio. You can either go with or you can stay. Well, he went with. <laughs> uh-huh. And you're still married to this day, right? Yes. Yes. God love him. <laughs> Turned out to be a good decision for him then, huh? Oh, I'm telling you. I always thought of uh, the automobile profession, the sales, all that, in which there was a uh, kind of a higher degree of drinking and than most professions. Is that true? Oh, that would be a great assumption. Was that the case when you got to San Antonio then? Oh, there was some guys and I knew them from when I worked at the Toyota store in Rosenberg. So I didn't realize to the, yeah, I did. They partied like rock stars. And the cocaine, more cocaine. (laughs) Then I learned about crystal meth. And so here I am. Oh, my God. I don't even know how I did it. Finance manager for this dealership. Mm -hmm. Once I went to lunch, all bets were off. I mean, I'd go to lunch. There was an Italian restaurant. We'd pull up Mm -hmm. and the wine bottle would be on the table. The bread with the dip sauce would be on the table before we ever got out of the car. So we'd sit there and go through a couple of bottles of wine Hmm. and then go back to work. There are some people that maybe can go back to work, but I couldn't go back to work. Uh, I would get irritated very easily and then uh, confrontational. And then I'd have to go home. When you were going out for these lunches, you were going out with other managers? Right. 
Did that soften the response from your employer to what was going on for you or uh, since everybody else was doing it? Or, or did you kind of stick out? At the dealership in San Antonio, everybody did it. Mm-hmm. And, and I may be wrong, but I don't think at that time anyone saw it as an issue. Yeah. You know, everybody and some of them, you know, the salesmen, of course, uh, I'd go, they they party, come over to our house and party. Uh, we'd all I mean, it was just like one big happy party and family that got out of control. I mean, to me, it got out of control, you know, and here I am pregnant with child number one and uh, still partying like a rock star hmm. and through the pregnancy and then delivered him uh, five weeks early in San Antonio. And, you know, he was fine as wine. Thank God. But you were continuing the drinking and whatever else while you were pregnant? Yes. I could not not do it because I remember um, trying to not not do it. Uh-huh. Because, and I didn't want anybody. I don't think there was a lot of people around, except my husband, that knew that I was still drinking like I was being pregnant. So your first child came at five weeks early. Yes, he came five weeks early, four pounds, 11 ounces. You know, they said he's healthy. What a blessing. There's no doubt that um, it was a blessing. No doubt in my mind. After, you know, when I sit here, think about what all I did being pregnant at this time. Right now, I can't see how I could have stopped totally not consuming the way that we were consuming. And I know when I was in the hospital, of course, I wasn't having anything to drink. Of course not. So I'm sure when I got home, I towed the line somewhat. Well, that's tough. I mean, to stop for an event or having a baby or any other reason, sometimes is enough of a reason to stop and sometimes is enough impetus to stop. But if you wouldn't have stopped otherwise, why would you stop just because of that, right? That's right. Yeah, I get that. I get that. So this this uh, this again is early '80s, and you mentioned earlier that your sobriety, your first sobriety date was in 1989. Correct. Can you fast forward through the '80s to take us to where when you finally got to AA and what the circumstances around that were? All right. So we stayed in San Antonio. We moved back. I got another job offer back in Rosenberg, so I thought, okay, let's go to Rosenberg. Uh huh. And uh, was in the car business back at that same dealer for about two more years. And then I had our second son. So I told my husband, I said, well, why don't I just stay home? And it'll be a lot cheaper than a daycare center. And he said, well, no, you know, you'll be drinking all day, every day. And I said, oh, no, I won't. I'll just wait. And, and, you know, when you come home from work, we'll have a drink and, you know, blah, blah. Well, that didn't work. So he noticed you had a problem, huh? Oh, yes. When did he first say something to you about that? Or when, when did you know that he knew that there's a problem going that on? That was probably the, the biggest deal was that day that we were out on the driveway and he said, you know, if you stay home, you'll just be drinking all day long. My husband could have a drink or two or three and he held a job. He was responsible, unlike his wife. So that's what we call a normie, right? Someone, <laughs> a normal drinker, a responsible drinker. I get it. That's it. And at the time, I don't think I could have gone to work. We had the two boys. I had, a, you know, it, it, after Nathan was born, then I started drinking, you know, even more. And, and it got extremely bad uh, by about 19. After Nathan was born, 88, I was just a whack job. And, I, you know, my parents would my daddy would come over and uh, they would just, you know, I could tell this look of disgust. Uh huh. And so the night that topped it, I mean, I went to uh, the daycare where my boys were in a CJ7 black Jeep and picked them up. I don't remember how I got there. I don't remember how I got home. Mm-hmm. But I do remember waking up. The, when, when we walked in the door, the boys said that they wanted a pizza. And I said, OK, so I ordered a pizza. And Howard, I'd been drinking shots of tequila, scotch. Uh, you name it. I was and so how I did this, I ordered a pizza. And the next thing I know, I'm looking up and there's the Richmond Police Department 
I, I'm on the living room floor. Hmm. And so there, I knew them all because they're local. I was grew up. And he said, uh, Sally, what, what have you been taking? I said, I haven't been taking anything. I've been drinking. He goes, there's no way. And I got, you know, I started coming to a little bit better looking around and there was all these cops in your living room, in my living room. <laughs> and, oh I, I, and so I got and I stood up and he said, you know, we've looked at what, where are the pills? What? And I said, I'm telling you, I haven't had any pills. I said, I've been out at Brazos bottom drinking this, this, and this. And I said, what are y'all doing here? Hmm. And he said, well, evidently you ordered a pizza and then it started clicking. And he said, and then you were on the floor. And so the pizza man, your boys wouldn't let him in because they said, my mama, no stranger, no stranger. And so they wouldn't hmm. open up the door. And the pizza man said, well, where's your mom? Well, she's on the floor. So he calls 911. And so hence, here comes the cops. And I guess the boys let him in. I don't know all that because I was passed out. But, uh, you know, he had said, if your mom wasn't on her way over here right now, we'd have to take him to CPS until your family could get him. So right then, and my husband was so pissed. Oh, he was beyond pissed. He comes home most nights and he'd have to park out on the street because the driveway was filled with cars because we were all partying. And these are these are friends of yours from the the job or from around town, around town. People I've known. So Sally's was the party place. Yes. Sally's Bar and Grill. Right. Even though there were two little toddlers running around. Yes. Yes. So after that event, my mother, she was going to take the kids so that I could sit there with my husband and figure out what we were going to do, because their concern, of mm -hmm. course, was for the little boys. They were three and two. So I ended up uh, agreeing to go to a place. I went there, and because of insurance, they would just cover for seven days. So I'll never forget, they had some really uh, hardcore psychotherapy mm -hmm. where they have you doing interaction my, against my father, talking about with my dad, you know, conversations, just really yeah. peeling emotionally down, stripping me. And of course, then they put me out on the street and said, you need to go find some sort of um, aftercare because your insurance won't cover anymore. So I ended up going to uh, AA. Mm -hmm. hmm. Was that their suggestion or was that something you figured out in your own? Were they leaning you towards AA or were they just said, go find aftercare? No, they uh, I'd called my insurance company and I said, OK, it, it, this this place that they wanted me to go to. It was more where you hold hands and you do a lot of meditation. And I just I, I thought, oh, this is just I went to I went to three of them to give them a fair shake. And I, it didn't make any sense to me. Uh -huh. I called my insurance company and I said, OK, so since I can't go, what do you all recommend? And um, they said, you may want to go to find you an Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought Alcoholics Anonymous. OK. So I looked in the phone book uh -huh. and there was one in downtown Richmond. It was in an old building. And so I thought, OK, I had to go because my parents were pressuring me. My husband, our relationship was so it was on the edge. Mm -hmm. So I went to AA and I get I, I drive up and I'm nervous as hell. And I put my hand on the doorknob and I look through the glass windows they had their little half curtains and I see this white head lady. And I thought the only person I know that has white hair like that is my son's preschool teacher. Hmm. And I thought, what is she doing in there? And so I just started looking around and I thought, Oh, I'm not going in there. You know, and they were smoking. So I started walking away and I, I then I stood there and I said, okay, what is she doing there? Evidently, she has a problem. Huh. So I'm having this conversation with myself. She's ha She's got a problem. So I walked on in and I sat at one of the tables and just listened. Of course, I, you know, I missed all mm -hmm. the introductions. And so after it was over with, I went up to her and she turned around. And of course, she mm -hmm. saw me and she smiled and she said, 
I was wondering if you were ever going to find these rooms. <laughs> All right. <laughs> wow. So I didn't say anything. I just kind of laughed and chuckled. And then, you know, I went to a couple of more meetings and they had one beauty of it is back in 89, kids were, they had a daycare in the back. They had a, they had one of the children of one of the goers that babysat any parent that came in there that had children. Yeah. And it was awesome. Uh, you know, that's probably one reason why I continued going there because the meetings were at six o'clock. My husband couldn't get home. He got off at six. So I had to take the three kids with me. Hmm. So we went to the meetings. It was the boys actually at that time, but I was got pregnant with Haley. So I went to those meetings and, you know, I, Howard, I, you've heard it before. And I just went, I just sat down and I had asked Barbara to be my sponsor and so she tried to give me, she gave, I had the big book. Mm-hmm. She tried to, you know, let's do the first step. And she gave me a little bit of direction. And I, I just, I didn't do any of it. What barriers had you set up for yourself to doing the work? You know, I, I don't, I don't know. I just wasn't going to do it. Yeah. Just weren't ready or. I, I just didn't want to be that. I didn't want to be, I knew I needed to be somewhere, but it wasn't there. And I kept thinking. I, um, you know, I'll be able to drink. I, I, I could not imagine not drinking because we had this group of people that we partied with. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't imagine not going to a, a crawfish boil without drinking. Uh-huh. So these people were, were still in the picture even while you were going to AA on a regular basis at that time? Oh, yes. So every time you saw them, it was... Sally, the woman who used to drink and party with us, now who doesn't do those things. How did that make you feel when you were around those people? Uh, horrible. I mean, I, I, I didn't want to be around them. Uh, there was a night, and this was fast. I was pregnant, got pregnant with Haley. And here I am, big, sitting in a rocking chair in our living room. And there's a bunch of folks out in our swimming pool partying like rock stars. And I was, you know, a dry drunk is not a fun one. Right. And a pregnant dry drunk is really not a, <laughs> is, that's really not a fun one. But I got so angry at him. You know, here you want me to, I thought you wanted me to do this. And, you know, here you are out here partying with all these people. And it just was a very trying time in our marriage because he was, he was still partying. Normally, as somebody who likes to party without having to be an alcoholic. Right, right. But of course, to me, because I wasn't able to do it, nobody could. So you hadn't changed out this group of people from the past with a new group. You didn't change your playgrounds and playmates once you were in AA. You continued on with the old crowd. Oh, yeah. So how long did that go on? Two years. Yeah, a little over two, a little over two years. So Haley is born during that time? Yes. And she was, at the time, she was about 12 months. We're going to Corpus Christi for spring break. And I've got my little iced tea. And we're, we get there. And I, we get on the beach. We get to the hotel. Everybody puts on their bathing suit. We go down to the beach. And Stan says, I'm going to go get me a beer. What do you want? And, and right out of my mouth, a Bloody Mary. Hmm. And he looked at me with this weird look. And I said, oh, come on, just one. No, it wasn't one. Before the weekend, the long weekend was over, mm-hmm. we came back with a full bar. I was uh, drunk. I went to a Mexican restaurant to eat dinner. I fell in the plate. The boys were going, Mama, come on, let's go, let's go. And I'm sitting there drinking, trying to catch this proverbial buzz before we go anywhere. It, you know, the nightmare began. Yeah, that sounds like a horrible nightmare. When when you asked for that Bloody Mary, it sounds like he paused and he said, are you sure? Um, had any point during the period in which you were sober, were you counting on him to keep you sober? Or did you blame him when you got drunk for the fact that he didn't stop you? Or was he just complicit by just ignorance of what was going to happen after you drank? Probably complicit of ignorance. Yeah, because a normal drinker would never consider that, right? Right. He, uh, yeah, he, I mean, he knew, but maybe he thought at the time and had a drink in two years, over two years, 
maybe she'll be okay. Maybe she's normal again. Right. She just flipped back. But um, and then he found out and we got and I know we got home from uh, it was horrible. The drive home was quiet because uh, I drank on the way home. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. Those first two years, had you gotten your chips? Had you started to do any work yet with your sponsor? Or were you just basically going to AA uh, and staying dry? So you didn't drink during that period at all the, uh, while you were in AA. No. So you slip at this point. What were your thoughts about slipping when you finally came to that realization? I could control it. Because you knew what to do or because now that you'd shown yourself you could stay sober for two years, you had some uh, new ability to stay sober if you wanted. Right. We were going to do weekends only. And were you planning to go continue on with AA or was that in the past by now? No, that was done. You know, she, the gal kept calling. She was calling me and I told her, I said, you know, I don't need it. Thank you very much, though. Yeah, I was going to control it and I was going to just drink on the weekends. And then that that did work for a little while. And then it didn't. And then it didn't. So we're talking about into maybe 1991 or 92. The wheels are starting to fall off or they've already fallen off at this point. What what were the next number of years like until you finally ended up in 98 coming around? The next six years were horrible. Horrible. In what way? Um, you know, by this time, I couldn't stop. I'm driving the boys to school. Just drunk as a skunk coming home playing with my daughter drinking and when when she would take a nap uh i would take a nap uh the boys would come home from school uh you know there's mom on the couch passed out i remember going up to the school one day drunk of course to take something to my daughter and i walk into the elementary and the fish Fried, you know, when the school makes fish, mm -hmm. fish sticks, yeah, it yeah. stinks. <laughs> yeah, right. I go and, and, and I, I know I wasn't dressed for the occasion, but I walk into the cafeteria kitchen area and start lifting up the pots and pans and ask them, what in the hell are y'all cooking for these children? It stinks. And. Of course, they're appalled. I mean, they're flipping out. And I just turn around and walk out, get in my car. Well, Tony's who was the um, he was the food director for LCISD. They lived in our neighborhood. He called my husband and he said, Stan, he said, Sally is welcome to the school anytime she wants, but she can't come up here drunk. And then my, you know, my parents, neighbors, I mean, you know, by this time, by 95, the, the, the wheels are off. Yeah. I mean, I'm drinking all day, every day. The boys, you know, this is some things I found out later, but my parents were so concerned uh, when the boys would get home from school. Uh-huh they would come over because I'd be passed out on the couch and they would be running the neighborhood. Uh, they would come get the boys and take them to their house mm -hmm. and my daughter and keep them there until Stan got home because I couldn't do it. That must have been awfully tough on your marriage at that point. It was. How did how did Stan react during those tough times? He was so angry at me and so mad at what I was doing that 
he could have probably killed me. Uh, we were having a conversation the other night. In this period, my mother had given me a sewing machine. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I was going to do with it, but I had asked for a sewing machine and she brought brought it over. And uh, one Sunday afternoon, I was passed out on the couch. Stan is outside in the backyard with the kids. And my mom and dad had driven up. And she asked, where's my sewing machine? And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, that sewing machine I gave Sally, where is it? It's in the house. Go get it. And he told her, he said, I'm not going to go get a damn thing. He said, if you want it, you go get it. Hmm. He said, I'm out here with my kids. He said, because your drunk ass daughter is in there passed out. She goes back to the car and my dad comes up and he goes, Stan, what's the matter? And he said, I'm, I have just about had it with your drunk ass daughter. Conversation goes on and on. And finally, my dad goes in and gets the sewing machine and mm-hmm. he just looked at Stan. He said, I'm sorry. And just took off. So it and, and it was just it was like this. It got, sounds like it was getting worse and worse as time passed. Every day. Every day. The only reason he came home Uh was to make sure those kids were okay. So he, like a lot of non-recovering alcoholics, didn't treat what was going on with you as a disease over which you had no control, but instead was angry at you because you couldn't stop. That's it. Yeah. Willpower. 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 Yeah. So so take us up to the final um, hours or the final days before you, you came back to AA, and, and what did that look like? Grim. Grim, yeah. It sound, <laughs> don't sound a whole lot of fun. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know this until much later, but my sister, my oldest sister, you know, I'd had some run-ins with them in that course of the six years. They would come grab the kids and take them for a weekend just to make it sound like fun for the kids and so forth. But it was really to get them away from me, Mm -hmm. Uh, the danger. So she had been arranging, trying to find some place to put me that would take me uh, because the insurance wasn't going to pay for it to do something about the drinking. Uh, She had done her research. She was a um, social worker. So she would, she got her little feelers out mm-hmm. and started doing all this investigating. And they came up with a place that would take me, but it would have to be under the guise of depression, severe depression. So it just, it was a, a Friday. It was a Friday. And I had been doing the same thing that I did every day for the days preceding. The kids would get home from school. I would be passed out on the couch. But this time I was on the bed. I was in our bedroom, passed out on the bed. And it was probably about four o'clock in the afternoon. And I get this tappy tap tap on the shoulder. It's my sister. And I roll over and I'm awakened out of a drunk sleep. And she said, "Uh, what are you doing? I said, oh, I just laid down for a few minutes to take a nap. And she said, well, you know, we want to talk to you about something. Hmm. And, of course, then I start coming to and – we go in the kitchen and there stands my mother and dad, my younger brother, hmm. my husband's on his way and the kids and my mom's crying. So I'm you know, what's happening? And she said, you know, we, you've got to do something about your drinking. She said, you're killing these kids and mom and dad and, you know, the family, we just, we want to take you somewhere, get you some help. And of course I became very, hostile and belligerent there was nothing wrong with me and uh behind the scenes prior to this moment Mm -hmm. my children had suitcases packed Hmm. and if i had not have accepted this offer my husband had a job lined up in mississippi he had a place rented for he and the children and his boss at Chrysler had told him that he could keep the Jeep. And whenever he found something in Mississippi, they'd work out the details, not to worry about it. So he had been planning this because he couldn't he couldn't stand it any longer. It sounds like a classic intervention, Sally. Exactly. Hmm. 
you know, and, and of course my dad, I didn't know this until Stan and I had a conversation a while back, but my dad had called him and he said, if we can get her to go to this place, will you not leave? Hmm. And so he said, okay. And of course I'm thinking of every excuse. Cause I knew down there in that cabinet was a big old half bottle of Weller. And I'm thinking, you know, you know, where am I going? What's this going to be like? Am I going to be able to come back home to this? What's it going to look, you know, all, all this stuff. And so I said, you know what, let's just wait till tomorrow. And Beverly's going, you know, let's just do this today. Why wait till tomorrow? And I said, well, I need to think about it. And I got a pack and my dad is just, go, you know, he's trying to carry on a conversation. My husband's not saying a thing. The children are over here. He's here. So finally I said, when my daddy, he, they were begging and begging and begging and nothing was working. I wasn't hearing anything they were saying. And finally he said, come on, Carolyn, let's go. She doesn't want any help. I said, oh my God, he's leaving. So I said, well, wait a minute. What, what, all right, I'll go. Huh? So they're all talking and Beverly grabs me and takes me back to our bedroom and I start throwing stuff in the suitcase mm -hmm. And this was the end, middle of February, I mean, middle of March. So we got loaded up in the car and my Stan and my sister and myself, my parents stayed with the kids and they took me and uh, one of the doctors had recommended, had a spot for me and they ended up having to take me back to the hospital so that I could get all these vitals and all this stuff test run before they would admit me. Mm -hmm. And the alcohol level was out of this, out of the world, out of this world. The doctors there said you should be dead. Um, so we ended up going in and it, it was not a 12 step. It was not AA. it was a mental institution. So for 10 days, their deal was to detox me. So after that, I talked to the shrink there, um, therapist, uh -huh. and he was awesome. He was from Houston. And of course, at the time, I didn't know it, uh, but he had 18 years of sobriety. So when I got discharged, you know, my husband had come up there that night before I left. And he said, uh, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm, I'm going to come home and I'm going to do whatever I have to do. And he said, you can't drink. And I said, I'm not. I don't think he trusted, of course, 10 days without a drink. Anyway, I get, I, my dad came that next morning, Monday morning to pick me up and took me home. And then I started going to AA. I had been there before. Right. 10, you know, in, in 89. What was your, what was Stan's response when you said you were going to go back to AA? Since he had seen it once before, did how did he react to that? He 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 didn't. You know, he he really didn't say anything. You know, I asked him years later. I said, "Why did you stay?" And he said, "Because I knew you were in there somewhere." Oh, that's great. That's great. So <clears throat> I did. I, I I went in conjunction with Alcoholics Anonymous, the state mandated me to go to uh, therapy two days a week. And then it would end up digressing to one day a week, but it was with Bob people. And they also had me on Zoloft for a short period of time because I told him, I said, you know, it's really not doing any good. Half a Zoloft, 25 milligrams or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. I said, the depression was caused by my drinking. Do I look depressed? So, we ended up shuffling that right out of the picture, but you know, God bless him because he's the one that set me on my, on my wheels. You know, I, I had somebody besides my sponsor helping me with the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And was this the same sponsor that you had had previously? No, I'm talking about Bob people. The sponsor, the psychiatrist said, you need to go to AA. He said, cause if you don't do something, you're going to be back here mm -hmm. or you're going to be pushing up. What kind of flowers do you like? And I said, daisies <laughs> right, are good. Right, right. He said, you're going to be pushing up daisies. 
you know, and in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, God, I don't want to go to AA again. It didn't do any good. Right. But I, but I knew the open-minded, I had to pull it off big because I didn't have a choice. And I, I, I didn't go for this. I went because of my family, the kids and my husband. That was all. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good enough reason to go, isn't it? It, it, it did it for me. Yeah. So, so you started to go to, the, um, to AA at that point uh, and you got yourself a sponsor. Correct. And how long did it take you to work through the 12 steps initially? It was about seven months. Seven months. Okay. Uh-huh. And did you start to embrace the program over that time or were you resistant to it initially and then overcame that resistance or, or were you ready from the day one? Pretty much once I met her and once I went to her house to start the journey. I was I was like a sponge. We'd be on this first step for a little while. She, you know, I'd be doing some notebook work, mm-hmm. and I'd be ready for step three, or I was ready for step four. Come on, I was anxious to get the ball going, but I can appreciate today the way she led me mm-hmm. because I needed to sit in every every step. Sit, yeah. Yeah. So, so you worked the 12 steps and in seven months, you, did you become a regular in AA after, uh, or during that period? And, and after you had worked the steps, were you starting to sponsor people? I went to uh, a meeting every day and I met my sponsor at a, a speaker meeting. And so that's when I asked her to take me through the steps Well, she was also going to the evening meetings. That's how I found her. It was pure God winks that she was there. Yeah. Uh, and then she's the one that recommended. She said, you know, she said, you've been you went here before. And she said, you you really need to get in touch with some some strong, strong sobriety. And she said, so I want you to meet me. That was her cue. I want you to meet me. <laughs> and she gave me the address and she told me how to get there. Because we didn't have GPS back then. So I did. I showed up. I parked. It was on Harwin. And I, I went in. And I remember Jim like it was yesterday. He's standing at the door. You know, hello, little lady. And, you know, I, I was scared shitless. And I was looking for Lynn. And, of course, she wasn't there. I knew, you know, I should have known. So I walked in. I sat down. And there was some people there that, that were there. Roe was there. Uh, there was a fellow, Jerry, he's deceased. He was terrific. But that man, uh, uh, another day in paradise. Yeah. It's just another day in paradise. And then he'd start laughing. His <laughs> laugh was infectious. And he and Jim, they were, uh, of course, they're gone now, but they were they were two of the people that if you met them on your first day or within your first several days, you'd almost immediately feel welcomed in into the club there. And... Uh, Oh, exactly. Well, I remember when the club moved over to to there from uh, from Richmond Avenue, and those guys were they were kind of cornerstones of that club and those meetings. And so that's probably where I first. I don't know if I met you at Harwin. I guess we met at some point there, but I think it's after it moved again over to West Park that I that I that West we Park. got to know that we right. got to know each other. Because Harwin, um, at that time, I was smoking. And they had the smoking meeting, which is at the end of the hall. And then the non-smoking that they eventually had. Mm-hmm. Remember, well, used to, your smokers sat on the right side <laughs> and the non-smokers on the left. You think about that. That's so stupid. I know. It's like the non-smoking tables they had in some of the clubs where, where they would have one table that said, no smoking here, but there'd be this blue haze over the entire room. Yeah, right. Yeah. Same thing. After a while... They had one of those rooms when you'd walk in that long hallway on the right side. Mm-hmm. There was a room that they eventually had for the non-smoking. So it was the non-smoking room. Well, I attended the smoking room. And uh, so that may have been where you were. Yeah, I, I'm sure. Because I first several years of, of the program, I used to go to meetings whether they were smoking or not. But then as smoking 
started to kind of separate itself from the rest of AA in the meetings. There were fewer and fewer smoking meetings because of city ordinances and that sort of thing. But I preferred the non-smoking meetings. Uh, but I never hesitated to go into a meeting where they were smoking if it was a good meeting and it was the only meeting. I, I, I'll i sit and breathe smoke for an hour if sure. it means I can go to AA. But I preferred the non-smoking. So you were going Correct. to you were going to Harwin until it moved. Right. And then it moved to uh, West Park. West, West Park. And now it's on the freeway there. That's amazing. So you've worked the steps. You're you're going to meetings all the time. I am. Over the next period of years. So we're talking about from 1998 to the present day. Of course, before you left Houston to, to move out to North Carolina, you, AA became a regular part of your life, I guess, huh? Oh, it was. It was. You know, and I'll tell you something funny. Back in the, the days. Right. Well, Sally got designated as the new person to... There was 80 houses in our little community. And every August or whenever this national night out was, I would host at our house. Uh We'd have a big event. And so all the cops would look forward to coming by and have a jumping thing for all the kids. And my dad would come over and help cook the big pots of seafood gumbo or chili or whatever. Uh And we'd have big parties. Well, the chief of police at the time, and this was back in 90. Six, he said, uh, Sally, he said, why don't you sign up for the Citizens Police Academy? Uh-huh. And I thought, you know, that would be great, <laughs> but I'm really busy. <laughs> I don't think right now is a good time for that, but that's the first thing that I did in 1999 is signed up for the Citizens Police Academy. Uh-huh. And y- you go into the prison. And you hear the doors shut. I think, thank God, you know, I don't have to be here. You know, you'd see the prisoners. They'd take us on a tour. And so I was able to accomplish that Uh in turn. uh, And I don't know how this happened, but they awarded me with the Citizen of the Year for all the contributions to the community in which I lived. And uh, then I went to real estate school Uh and I got my real estate license and sold houses for a couple of years. But that didn't match with being a mom and wanting to be involved in my children's activities, whether it be sports or education. Um, Mm -hmm. And my oldest boy was on the golf team. He graduated from high school in 2004. And I, I attended everyone along with my husband. Every one of his golf tournaments, um, I told him, I said, you know, years ago, I, I couldn't have got I didn't go to one of your baseball games uh, because I couldn't. I said this. I will not miss a golf tournament. We're talking about the, the gifts of sobriety here, aren't we? We are. And and during this period of time, can, can you think of uh, maybe a couple of times where you were challenged, where your sobriety was pushed? maybe to the edge uh, where maybe you were contemplating a drink and what happened or uh, other times, maybe when things were just going so well that you decided maybe you didn't need AA. Can you recall some of those times between uh, when you got sober and, and the present day? You know, I always said, no, I, you know, I made such a commitment. Yeah. If I was going to be pushed, it would have been back in 2006 when my middle son the middle child actually was in a motorcycle wreck. I remember kneeling at Herman Hospital downtown, just crying. Why? You know, why him? And my husband was just standing there, bless his heart. He didn't know what to do, but because I just flipped out. But I I wasn't thinking about a drink. Hmm. Um, I think when I made that commitment back in 1998, that a drink would not solve any of my problems that God removed the obsession to drink. Mm-hmm. I just haven't, I haven't been pushed to take a drink. You know, we're sitting at a restaurant, uh, like most of us, maybe none of us, I don't know, but I'll, somebody will order a margarita. My husband, for God's sakes, he'll order a margarita. Uh-huh. I, it, it just doesn't cross my mind. That sounds like the perfect demonstration of a commitment well kept by virtue of the work that you've done in the program over the years. 
Sounds to me like whatever you've done in your program has only made that commitment stronger. Is that a is that a fair thing to say? That's a beautiful assumption. How true is it? You know, I had I had said if after my dad passed away, I'll be able to drink again. He passed away in 17. No way. I would never have breached my commitment to my higher power not to pick up a drink, no matter what. So somewhere along the way you thought about, well, maybe if that happens, maybe then I'll drink. (laughs) And then it happened and you didn't. Yeah. My dad was the only one to see the relationship that we had flourish like I had hoped, like I had imagined my relationship with my dad would be. Mm -hmm. When I stopped drinking and changed my life, it started happening. Hmm. I was there the day that he passed away and it, I just could not have asked for anything in being sober. That's the only way I can be today. Yeah. I remember seeing you in the meeting, at the meeting that we would go to every day. I remember seeing you shortly thereafter and you shared about that in the meeting and to me, that's what helps get us through the next thing that might be tough in our life is being able to share the tough things in other people's lives to see them keep the commitment to not drink no matter what. You know, what's funny is you had said when your mother passed away, Mm -hmm. the first thing you did was go to a meeting. Two hours later, I was sitting at the club. Yes, absolutely. And so mine wasn't two hours later, but I knew that's where I needed to go. I don't need to sit around here and frothy around these family. I need to go sit my ass in at a meeting. That's where I need to be. I think that's one of the reasons why you and I connected so well is because we have that same kind of attitude towards those events. And we hang with people who are the kind who say, don't drink no matter what. Uh, We hang with folks that have gone through about everything that people can go through and still stay sober. So kind of wrapping things up here, but I wanted to just ask you, when you run into newcomers or people with limited sobriety, what do you tell them about the future that they have to look forward to? Life will take on a whole new meaning. The, you know, I think about the promises and, you know, they, there's no words, Yeah. Um, but life takes on a new meaning and you never have to feel like that again. Yeah. And you don't have to drink again. You know, I pondered when Stan and I made the decision to move here. My father had told me he loved to hear our stories going on these motorcycle rides. You know, we'd been to Florida. We'd been to Colorado. We'd been to Alabama, Georgia, Mm -hmm. and even got to eat at Paula Dean's restaurant. And so my dad told me, he said, you know, I know you want to go somewhere. He said, and when your mom and I aren't here anymore, you can go somewhere, but right now you got to take care of us. Hmm. So after my mom passed away in 2019, November, January, 2020, Stan and I thought, okay, where are we going? So we put a bunch of stuff in the pot, closed our eyes and decided North Carolina. Oh my gosh. It was a toss up between the Ozarks or the Smoky Mountains. And so I had asked I was talking out loud and I said, God, if there is something, find my dad. And if there's a reason why we should not be moving to North Carolina, if there's something that I can't see, show me. Hmm. Have a bird fly over my head and crap on my head. Do something (laughs) and nothing. Howard, there was not a barrier. There wasn't a door shut. There wasn't a window. It was Everything was full stream ahead, but I knew Mm -hmm. I would not find another club, but a better find an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And last night, they asked me to be the chairperson for the literature. Oh, wow. I I was so excited. I called Stan and I said, well, I guess I'm part of the group now there. They voted me to take care of all the literature. So Uh, good for you. You know, Lynn Lynn had told me, find you an AA meeting and get into it, both feet. And I Mm -hmm. knew that because I've talked to people that have, you know, left and they inserted themselves in Alcoholics Anonymous Uh and you can't do it half ass. You have to do it all the way. 
And it's a great place to make new friends, too. And you've, when you've moved to a new area, uh, it's almost like you've got a built-in uh, group of people waiting for you when you get there. Uh, you can walk into any AA meeting anywhere and feel... That's why when people say, you need to go to a home group, what's your home group, Howard? I always say, well, whatever meeting I'm in that day is my home group. Because I feel at home everywhere I go in AA. Right, right. So, sounds like you connected really well there. And I remember when, when some of the folks were helping you move yes. over yes. there and what and how excited they told me you were to be going there. But it uh, sounds like you've landed on your feet really well. I had to do a couple of Zoom meetings uh, because I knew I needed to plant my feet here. I still have friends in Houston. They'll be friends forever. Uh, but in Stan, he tells people, he said, Yes, he said, the minute she hits town, she she hooks up. She's got friends. He said, my only friend is the garbage man. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, I want to thank you for doing this. You're you're one of my friends and I love you and you're just a, a terrific person. I love you, too. You're awesome. Thank you. And and the fact that you did this today is going to be of such help to other women, especially your story about having gone to AA, not doing the work, not engaging, not getting connected and going back out and then coming back to AA, doing the work, doing what's necessary. And you're still here 23 years later which is it's just it's such a gift and to me you're you're a gift and i uh i can't tell you how happy i am that thank you, you do this today so thank you so much well my friends that's a wrap for today's episode of aa recovery interviews thank you for tuning in if you enjoyed aa recovery interviews will you please tell others how to listen to it and be sure to leave a five-star rating on apple podcasts that will help others find us and of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this podcast series by following it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or listen to our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all podcast production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next new episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>